The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Avery Schmitz with an episode of Chatter for February 19th, 2023. For today's episode, the Lawfare team decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast from David Priest and Shane Harris, featuring in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled, Former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley's Reflections on Presidential Transitions. In the episode, Priest sat down with Hadley to discuss the intricacies of presidential transitions with insights gleaned from Hadley's newly released volume, Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley on preparing for a presidential transition. President Bush basically said, we've got to help this new team, whether it's McCain or it's Obama, because they're going to come into office with two active wars, the war on terror, and though we didn't know then, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the Great Depression. We really thought in 2005 that freedom, democracy was on a roll. It was the wave of the future. And in 2006 and 2007, as we'd say from the Star Wars analogy, the empire struck back. And you see it played out right now in Ukraine. We prepared 40 transition memos, what our strategy was, what we thought we accomplished, and what were the challenges they were going to face for day one. Steve, welcome to Chatter. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. It is, it's been a long time since I, I have spoken with you in a very different context, and it's going to be a pleasure to talk with you today about really centered around the issue of national security advisors, transitions between presidencies, the foreign policy challenges that arise therein, and, and how we do collectively at preparing for those moments. So I'd like to start with your early career, because you'd spent time before moving into the George W. Bush White House as a deputy national security advisor. You'd already served in many capacities in the Pentagon, in National Security Council staff and and elsewhere. I'm wondering what your memories are of 
actual presidential transitions from those various vantage points before you became more intimately involved during the Clinton-Bush transition? Well, interesting, David. I started out in my government career in the Pentagon in 1972. Mm-hmm. And in 1974, I ended up going over to the National Security Council staff shortly before President Nixon resigned. And I then served through the Ford administration. When President Ford was not reelected and President Carter was elected, right. I was asked by Spigneo Brzezinski to stay on on the staff, which I did for about three weeks or four weeks into the new administration. Hmm. So uh, the first day under the Carter administration, when I walked into the office, all the safes were cleaned out. That is to say, all the records of the Ford administration had been taken because they're presidential records and they would end up in the Ford Presidential Library. So now as a new staffer for the Carter administration, I had no documents whatsoever. There were only three of us or four of us who were asked to remain from the Ford staff onto the Carter NSC staff. So on that first day, when Spigneo Brzezinski walked into the office as national security advisor, he virtually had no staff other than three or four of us who were held over from the Ford administration. Mm -hmm. I don't remember briefings or memos there may have been that we provided to the incoming administration. So I would say that my first experience with a transition was that there was really no transition uh, effectively between the Ford and Carter administrations. And that had a big impact on me. And yeah, let me dig down a bit on that, because that may not sound as, as horrific to many people as it sounds to me, and perhaps upon reflection as it feels to you. But we have to remember a new president, a new administration coming in. You may think because they've done some foreign policy thinking and planning and they have a few senior nominees and the campaign trail certainly has a number of campaign promises in it that they can just hit the road and pick up where the last team left off. But there are, for every country in the world and every multilateral organization and all of these foreign policy initiatives, there are recent meetings that have been held with foreign officials and updates on policies and programs that are continuing. And I can't imagine walking in to to a new administration and having a completely empty safe and not knowing what my predecessors had said and done in recent meetings to prepare for the meetings that, that I was going to have in my particular area of concern. It is a big problem. You know, every administration that comes in after winning election you're pretty on a high from having won the election. And there's a sense that most of us have when you come in with a new administration that you're writing on a clean sheet of paper, if you will. But of course, you're not. There is an enormous amount of continuity, as you describe, And you've got to know, if you're going to do your job effectively, what went before. And the problem is when you come in Uh, to a situation where all the NSC records are gone and been transferred to the presidential library of the outgoing president, you're really dependent on reaching out to the State Department, the Defense Department, to understand what that history is. And a lot of that history, of course, was done by the National Security Council staff and may or may not have been shared with the State Department, the Defense Department. So it was one of the things that I think really had to be remedied in subsequent transitions to allow staff to copy key documents 
and to have those documents available for the new team coming in so they could see what was the history of the NSC staffs and, and, and the pre- prior president's involvement on the issues of the day. Now, this is also a time before the Presidential Records Act, which was signed, I believe, during the Carter administration and then would take effect with the Reagan administration. So you, you first of all, have the problem of no continuity of foreign policy documents, no thread line of what had been happening. But you also have the issue of essentially everything could just go to the Ford Presidential Library, I assume, uh, in Michigan. And there would not even be the what I would call the other government materials that normally could be accessed, uh, at least through the archives at the time. So when you're talking about a blank slate for for Jimmy Carter, for Zbigniew Brzezinski, for you, at least you had memories, and maybe you could call up some of the previous officials, but it's really shocking that any foreign policy until more recent years could start and get anything done for the first few weeks at all. You're exactly right, and one of the things that I think the remedies we came up with and other administrations have done is rather than have the whole NSC staff leave on the last day of the outgoing president. So there's basically nobody home for the incoming administration. You can remedy that, that by accepting the resignations of the senior most people, mm-hmm. but keeping the junior officials in place. You know, the NSC staff is, as you well know, mostly people detailed from the State Department Mm -hmm. or from the Defense Department or the intelligence agencies and other agencies of government. So you keep those younger staff in place and make one of them an acting director for each of the various units of the NSC staff. So there is a, and if you also have allowed them to make copies of the documents that they're going to need under the incoming administration, you now then have a set of documents and a set of staff so the incoming administration can begin to do business from day one. Mm-hmm. And not to get too far ahead of the game, but that's something that, that you consciously did in 2008, 2009. But we will get there because that, that definitely helped along with the many other things that happened during that crucial transition. So let's move forward a bit. Um, now let's say it is the year 1999 moving into uh, 2000, and there's an election going on between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. And ultimately, um, way, way too late, we find out who the president is in December of, the president-elect is, I should say, in 2000, uh, mid-December 2000. You are in the transition process there on the Bush-Cheney team and ultimately coming into the administration as Deputy National Security Advisor. I wonder if you can describe the overall process of that transition from your vantage point as someone coming back into government after, after a period where you were away, but having had the experience of seeing that earlier transition. So because of the lateness of the resolution of the election, the time we had available for the transition was about half of what was it's normally available. Mm. So it was an accelerated transition. What you're doing as the incoming group is you got to get your people in place. You got to figure out who you want to have in your senior positions at the NSC staff. That's very important. Secondly, you want to have at least an initial framework 
of what some of your early policy initiatives are going to be. And third, one of the things you do is you need to schedule, if you will, and think through the opening moves of the president as the president comes into office and begins to exercise the powers of that office. What messages do you want to send not only to the country, but also to the world about the attitude and approach of the new administration? So there's a lot going on. Second of all, um, you've been out of office for a period of time. Uh, and uh, you you don't know what you missed. And I think one of the risks is that people coming in who have served in government, then been out for four or eight years and coming back in is they don't appreciate how much has changed. Mm. For example, uh, Condi and I, Condi Rice, who was National Security Advisor, and I had several meetings with Sandy Berger, who was the late Sandy Berger, who was then the National mm. Security Advisor for President uh, Clinton. and he said a couple of things that were very interesting. He said, terrorism is going to take much more of your time than you ever imagined. It's a new issue from the days when you were here under the Bush, George H.W. Bush administration. Mm -hmm. You're going to be spending a lot of time on terrorism. And of course, that was very prophetic. We also showed him an organizational chart of how we proposed to staff the new NSC system and the NSC staff. And remember one of the things he said was, you do not have enough people doing press and you don't have enough people doing Congress. The Congress <laughs> is much more engaged than when you were last in power and interacting with the press is now a 24 seven occupation with respect to the new media. I find that to be so telling because you're focused on the substance. You're 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 thinking about the core issues, and th and there were many of them. There's Russia. There's China. There's the peace process. There's Iran. There's terrorism. And probably the last thing on your mind was worrying about the press as you're about to get started. So that may have been a good insight, right? It was a very good insight, and it proved telling as we got into office and started dealing with the issues of the day. And we did end up expanding our capability in both of those mm -hmm. areas. Fascinating. Now, you said that some of this information, uh, I believe, came from uh, Sandy Berger in conversation. And I'm wondering, how much paper was there to back this up? And by paper, I mean possibly also electronic materials, but back then certainly, uh, even today, a whole lot of actual paper. Were some of these things put in written form and left for you, or was a lot of it really gained through those direct conversations? Uh, I guess we were presented with a couple briefing books. Um, you know, there there's a lot going on and you don't really have the luxury of spending as much time reading those materials as you would like. So I think one of the things that were more useful were actual briefings. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the things that uh, Sandy insisted on was that we sit down with Richard Clark, who was running basically for the NSC staff, the counterterrorism operation, and to get briefed on Al-Qaeda, what we knew about Al-Qaeda, what they were doing, what their capabilities were. And we had two, maybe three sessions with his team getting briefed on that. It was very useful. One of the things we decided to do was to keep Richard Clark and his team on under the new administration to keep doing what they were doing to deal with the threat from Al-Qaeda so there wouldn't be any break in the tempo of our operations there. So I think the conversations with Sandy were extremely helpful. 
the briefings were extremely helpful. And I know that uh, Secretary of State Powell and uh, the Defense Department people were also talking with their counterparts in the outgoing administration. Those conversations at the cabinet or department to department level were also extremely useful. A potentially awkward question here, but, but I hope not. There were several, I don't know if surprises is the right term, but several incidents that happened within a few months of starting the administration. And I'm not talking about 9-11 here. I'm talking before that. Things like the incident with China over the, uh, the plane that went down on Hainan Island uh, and others. Did you feel that there could have been, in a sense, better preparation for those incidents and, and maybe there would have been a chance to get your legs running a little bit faster in processing the bureaucracy through those incidents with a stronger transition, the kind that you tried to develop and implement eight years later? I don't think so in terms of handling that crisis, for example, because that was, uh, this was a, a, uh, a virtually a collision between a U.S. intelligence uh, plane and, a, and a, a Chinese pilot who was hot-dogging by approaching too close mm-hmm. to that plane, and it went down in Hannon Island. The plane was held hostage. Our people were held hostage for a time. This was a huge crisis. And as a consequence, it was handled at the level of Secretary Powell, Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, National Security Advisor Rice, myself as well. And we would, for example, be on the phone with our ambassador in Beijing sort of every morning at sort of 3.30 or 4 in the morning talking about what we were going to do that day, where, what was the status of the situation, what we were learning from the Chinese. So I think those kind of operational things um, were, uh, we, we, we didn't suffer from the transition, I would say with one exception. Hmm. And it's something, again, we tried to do in 2008, which was one of the things you don't know when you come in is what are the resources available to the government in handling some of these crises? So one of the things I think that would have been helpful and that we did in 2008 was to kind of have a a tabletop exercise where you walk through the kind of contingency like the the force down of the EP3 and you said and and walk through what were the lines of communication to the Chinese in this case but also what were the resources at various parts of the government to deal with the crisis. I think that would be useful. I think the real problem in transition is getting your people in place. Mm. You know, we wanted to take a look at our uh, a whole series of policies, including our policy for dealing with counterterrorism. Uh, but uh, I was chair of the deputies committee. I didn't get Senate confirmed deputies. I think the first one was Paul Wolfowitz, deputy secretary of defense. And he showed up in May. So I initially, after January, had a couple early deputies committee meetings and had to shut them down because there were really no deputies to come to those meetings. Uh, And we really didn't have, therefore, the perspective of the new administration. So it's really May or June before the government starts to work. Well, you've lost, you know, three to five months in that process. So one of the things that the legislation that now governs transitions has tried to do is to accelerate the process by which 
people get nominated, people get vetted, people get their security clearances, people can get confirmed so that uh, you can get your people in place sooner in the process and start the policymaking process sooner. The other thing that has been done is to try, and this is something that the Biden administration did very effectively, accelerate the appointment of officials who are below the level of requiring Senate confirmation. So you can get those officials Mm -hmm. in place quickly. So you may not get your assistant secretaries in place, but you can have your deputy assistant secretaries, for example, in place and, and functioning because they don't require Senate confirmation. So I think the, the one of the most important things is to try to accelerate and bring forward the day when the new administration really has their team in place to begin re- wrestling with the issues of the day. Absolutely. And this is a theme. I sat down with uh, David Marchik, who has previously served as director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service and written and spoken quite a bit about transfer of power issues. And this is one of the issues he identified as absolutely crucial. Uh, people people matter, and you can't do effective oversight of the national security bureaucracy, effective coordination of the national security bureaucracy. If, if you don't have people to do the coordination and people to coordinate, then it just becomes a handful of people trying to juggle way too many balls at the, the same time during an already hectic time. I'll give you an example of the price you pay for yeah, that. Yeah, give us an example. And I, I think this, my recollection is right on this. When we finally got deputies in place in May and June, we started a review of our counterterrorism policy. Again, Richard Clark and his team were continuing to do what they were doing, mm-hmm. but we had some initiatives we wanted to take on our own. We got those pulled together at the deputies committee met level put them up to the principals committee, which is the cabinet level group just below the president, and had them in a document that was on the president's desk on September 10th, right? one day before the al-Qaeda attack on September 11th. Uh, would it have made any difference if right. we'd gotten that in place three or four months earlier? Probably not, mm. but it shows the problem of the length of time it takes to get your people in place. And before you can really start a serious policy process. That is that is amazing. And we should note that getting a full policy review done that you're starting essentially in the summertime and getting it done in early September, that, that in itself is is not bad. That that that's actually pretty good in terms of the time frame of some of right. these things, at least that I've been part of. But when you have that late of a start, you you do allow quite a bit of a presidential term to go by before you even really get your legs fully under you. Exactly. Well, let's let's turn to, obviously you were deeply involved in the transition at that point in 2000 and 2001 on the receiving end. But in the next transition from 2008 to 2009, from the administration of George W. Bush to the administration of Barack Obama, you were intimately involved in it from the other end because at this point you were the assistant to the president for national security affairs, the national security advisor, and you had a very clear mandate, as did Josh Bolton as chief of staff, to ensure that this was the smoothest, most productive transition in history. And to the extent you can characterize it, I'm hoping you can flesh out a little bit what the president told you about why he was so insistent about 
not just meeting the requirements of the law as it existed at the time, which was not as robust as it is now, but exceeding those legal requirements and doing the ethically right thing to prepare the incoming administration, which frankly during the campaign had been absolutely brutal on many aspects of the Bush administration's national security policy. What did the president tell you and roughly when in terms of this had to be done at the highest possible professional and ethical level? So it was the transition was difficult, I think, in some measure for the president, because both Barack Obama and John McCain ran against the Bush administration Mm -hmm. and the Bush administration policies in that 2008 campaign. Uh, But but President Bush talked to Josh Bolton and and basically told him uh, in the early on late 2007, early on 2008, I can't recall the, the exact date. Uh, and basically said to Josh, uh, we've got to help this new team, whether it's McCain or it's Obama, Hmm. because they're going to come into office with two active wars, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, the overarching war on terror, proliferation challenges in Iran and North Korea. And uh, though we didn't know then, we soon were going to be in the midst of the biggest financial and economic crisis since the First Depression since the Great Depression. And the president was determined to try to put the new team, again, whether Obama or McCain, in a position that they could handle these crises for day one. So his charge to Josh Bolton was, this is a top priority for my team in the White House and for my administration as a whole to make this the best transition ever. And to his credit, President Obama was a very willing and constructive partner uh, in this process. So you had the outgoing President President Bush and the incoming President, President Obama, committed to making a first-class transition. And that was what was required in order to, to energize the bureaucracy to realize that vision. And he gave Josh Bolton the, the charge of getting it done. And Josh did a superb job. Uh, both on the domestic side, where he relied heavily on Joel Kaplan, and on the foreign defense and national security side, where he gave me my, my marching orders and asked me to take responsibility for getting that done as well. Let me dig a little bit into that period from when the president first makes clear to to Josh and to you, this is what we are going to do. Um, you are also managing the NSC process. You're also dealing with Uh, an immense array of foreign policy and homeland security challenges in coordination with the Homeland Security Council and a number of other people. Um, On top of this, you're supposed to also be doing what could be a full-time job, uh, along with many others, of preparing the transition materials. So for much of 2008, and especially those latter six months of 2008 before the election, can you describe just from a human resources point of view, how did you, and especially the senior directors and their teams across the wide array of the NSC staff portfolio, how did you find a way to manage both the ongoing national security needs of the United States, uh, which were, were many, and prepare the robust transition materials that were then going to be used for the incoming team? Well, there's no so, there's no shortcut. It's about 
getting up early and staying up late. Oh. Uh, but the staff was very much energized because, you know, the president had made it clear that this was a priority and we had to make the time for it. And uh, so it was an additional duty. And I must say the staff responded heroically. And uh, we, we, as you know, prepared some 40 transition memos for the new team on the issues of the day, describing what we found, what we did, what, what our strategy was, what we thought we accomplished, and what was left for them to do, and what were the challenges they were going to face on the 40 or so big issues of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and then again, with lots of attachments, describing what our policy was, memorandum of conversations that the president had with world leaders, either on visits or telephone calls relevant to the issue, records of NSC and principals committee meetings. We put all of that together because it was, it seemed to be the best way to give that administration the history as, and have it available to them as they walk in the door. The other thing we worked on was to get what are the briefings that the new team is going to need, again, to supplement, because in some sense, you know, voluminous written materials are fine as a reference, but uh, they're, 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 the new incoming team has a lot of pressures on their time. So we wanted to try to see if there were multiple ways we could get the administration to them. Yes, these transition memos. Yes, briefings, formal briefings. Yes, informal meetings with incoming members of the team who are going to replace or have the positions that we were going to be vacating. So it was, uh, it was a big effort. But I think given the magnitude of the challenges that the new administration was going to face, the fact that if the administration were to fail on those issues, our country would fail on those issues. So it was important they be prepared. And the clear guidance from the president, there wasn't a problem, quite frankly, getting people motivated to take on this preparation for the transition as an additional mm -hmm. duty to all the things that were already occupying your time. And I, I know well several people who were working on some of these issues at the time, and uh, they've described it similar uh, to the way you've described it, maybe with a little bit more uh, groggy eyes and memories of exhaustion, but uh, definitely something they felt was important to do as a public servant, but also something that was absolutely brutal just in terms of what was already an obscene long schedule on, on most days. Much of what you just brought up, Steve, the transition memos and much of the material around it is, is contained in a new book that is remarkable. And I, and I say that not as a value judgment, but as an objective fact. It is remarkable that you've been able to pull together with the help of people like Peter Fever, Will Inboden, Megan O'Sullivan, and Maureen McGrath, um, a book that brings, brings out to the public so quickly relatively after this transition. Most of these transition memos, not all, but, but most of them, and a lot of commentary and analysis around it. The book is called Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. And it's, it's almost 800 pages of transition memos, of analysis by one or more of the people who prepared those memos about what was going on at the time and why it was written the way it was written and what has happened since. 
And you get to see these transition memos just as Barack Obama and his senior staff saw in January 2009 when they came into office. And I have to ask, how did you pull this off? Because many historians would love to get this information for relatively recent administrations and have been unable to, and they have to fight for declassification sometimes uh, and wait for 25 or 30 years for the declassification to happen. What was the process of getting this pulled together, and how were you able to do it? Well, thanks for that, David. And we can talk a little bit about the book. In terms of the declassification, we did it by the book. We put in the outgoing Bush staff put an enormous amount of effort into these transition memos. I recalled them as being pretty good. And about three years ago, I went down to the Bush Library Mm -hmm. and I still had my security clearances. And I got the memos and I thought, this really is a terrific record of what the Bush administration faced, what our strategy was, what we thought we accomplished and that it deserved to see the light of day. So I went to President Bush and proposed this idea, and he was all for it. And he requested the National Archives to declassify the 40 transition memos. And those, they had a lot of unclassified attachments, but a lot of the attachments were classified. So he requested that the 40 transition memo be declassified and that the attachments be declassified, those that were classified. Uh, and that process took a long time, uh, and uh, but the archives was very cooperative. Uh, we thirty nine of the forty memorandum have been declassified. Some of them have some redactions to them for for of classified material that was not prepared to be declassified at this time, but they're relatively few. Uh, and the attachment process of declassifying those is still ongoing. Um, So I think it was the president's support and the fact that the National Archives professionally were were, were willing to support the project is the reason it became declassified. The other thing is, while there's an editor and three co-editors, there are almost 40 members of the Bush NSC staff who participated in the process of taking each transition memo. These were the people who either wrote the memo or worked on the issue. Mm -hmm. And we asked them to write a postscript to the memo that would take it from where the Bush administration left it, update what had happened on the issue under the Obama, Trump, and early Biden administrations. And on the basis of that, look back and evaluate what Bush administration had done, what we got right, what we got wrong. And then finally, looking now at 20 years of four administrations handling these issues, uh, what are the lessons learned for future presidents? So the, in some sense, all the effort and late nights that people spent uh, writing these transition memos in the first, day, first place, I think it was kind of exciting for folks to think that they were actually going to see the light of day and then to have a chance to look back now uh, some 12, uh, 13, 14 years after the end of the Bush administration see what had happened, and make some judgments about how we did. That's a kind of unique opportunity, and I think the staff were pretty energized in that process. It really is. And then the third piece of it is, while the book has 30 of these 
39 declassified transition memo, those 30 plus the nine that have uh, were not, not in the book, plus all the unclassified attachments and the declassified attachments are going to go up on a digital archive maintained by the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University that Jeffrey Engel is overseeing. So people will be able, in terms of the book, with the 30 of the transition memos and the postscripts, and then this archive, I think it will give researchers, scholars, and the general public who's interested in these issues a good platform for which to look at what the Bush administration did and come to their own conclusions about its significance. On that last point, I think it's it's important to realize that, that no one's going to read these documents, or at least uh, I think no one's going to read these documents and change their, their preconceived notions about an actual foreign policy decision of pursuing this agenda versus that agenda or making this decision for war or, or not. But that's not your purpose. Your purpose isn't to change people's minds. The purpose is to give a rare, and again, earlier than usual historically, insight into two things. One is the foreign policy thinking, why things were done, what thought and care was put into it, what institutions were recognized or, or created or adapted along each line. And, and secondly, the, the very process of doing so, the creation of these memos and the, the process of reflecting on past administrations and future ones as part of the continuity of the national security of the United States. But to be clear, your goal isn't to try to put a spin on it, to try to sell this foreign policy agenda uh, of the Bush administration and to, to make people think differently about it. It's to give people insight into it so that they do understand it better. I think that's exactly right. This is written for the history books and for those scholars and researchers who over the next decades mm -hmm want to take a look at and evaluate the Bush administration. And they're going to come to their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, the company, the country in some sense has already come to a lot of conclusions, uh, though as events occur, those events in the Bush administration sometimes uh, begin to look a little different. Right. But I think what's unique about it is you've got in the transition me memorandum the record of where we thought we were what we thought we'd accomplished when we left office in 2008. It's unvarnished and it's at real time. Um, and uh, it, it is not written with, the, uh, with hindsight to try to make us look a little bit better. Mm -hmm. It's the unvarnished assessment that we had at the time and people can decide how it, uh, how it played out over time. The postscripts will help in that judgment, but what, what we really wanted to do was to say, look, anybody who wants to write about Bush foreign policy, understand Bush foreign policy, will probably want to start with this book and this digital archive. They can say whatever they want about mm -hmm. it. And they will. But they will at least have the perspective of those people who were laboring in the trenches at the right. time. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's dig into the substance, Steve, of a, a few of these. And I'll, I'll start with the first one that you have in the book for good reason, and that is the transition memo on the freedom agenda. And it's important for people to realize something that I think gets gets lost pretty quickly. The, the quick amateur view of the Bush administration foreign policy is everything happened after 9-11 and was a result of 9-11 and the decision to, to go into Iraq. But people forget that the freedom agenda was actually articulated first in, during the administration, was articulated first in the president's inauguration address itself, the literal beginning of his presidency. You wrote the first uh, short introduction to part one about the freedom agenda and called it the soul of Bush's foreign policy. And the very first chapter and transition memo and assessment are about the freedom agenda. Reflect on that a bit. Why, why is that first? And looking back at it, how do you assess the importance of that freedom agenda, both as the administration started and throughout the course of the eight years? I think the freedom agenda is very important because it's in some sense, you know, there, there are a couple lessons that come from this book. One is, and you started there, a lot of people think, well, the Bush administration did Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror. That's it. <laughs> and one of the things you do is you look, just look at the table of contents of the book, the number and variety of issues across the full spectrum of issues presenting the, presented to the United States by the international environment are dealt with all at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think people will have to recognize that it was a broad, comprehensive, and ambitious agenda. And that's just not true of the Bush administration. That's true of most administrations. So the American people need to understand that if you're the United States government engaged in the world, you're doing a lot of things at once. Mm -hmm. And second, the other thing I think people will conclude from it is the, the president is really critical in developing the strategy and conceptualizing and then implementing the key approaches of the administration. I say that the president is the chief strategy of his or her administration. The cabinet secretaries are important because once he sets the general direction and empowers them, they then make the tactical decisions to bring about the outcome he's looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's really interesting, the breadth of the issues and the centrality of the president in setting the direction of the administration. Therefore, what's important is, what is the framework the president brings to these issues? And that's why we started with the freedom agenda. The president really believed that individual people are best positioned to make the decisions that affect their own lives and their lives of their children and grandchildren. And that was a a key principle of both his domestic agenda, no child left behind, for example, in education, how important education was, how important health was, but also his international agenda. He thought it was important to 
liberate, if you will, people. So they were in a position to make these decisions for their own future. And that means freedom from tyranny, freedom from the tyrannies of ignorance mm -hmm. and want and disease. And if you have that kind of framework and mindset that the president had, you then see why he uh, spent the time, for example, on HIV AIDS and dealing with the the uh, the pandemic and endemic diseases that were affecting the developing world in Africa and, and Latin America, for example, HIV AIDS, malaria, neglected tropical diseases. So we started the book with the Freedom Agenda because it tells you something about what is the framework and the mindset of the president as he comes to deal with the issues that came before the Bush administration. I was going to say in the reflective essay that accompanies this transition memo, as, as all of the memos have a reflective essay accompanying them, the, the lessons learned by the look back at the administration and what has happened since really speak to the overarching issues that do at least influence and even govern many of the more specific ones that follow. Lessons like the history of democracy waxes and wanes and promotion of freedom and democracy must be balanced against other interests at times, that providing security is the precondition for allowing democracy to even take root, and of course that American leadership in advancing liberty is important, but it is not determinative. And I think those reflections from people who were involved in implementing this freedom agenda at the time is important because the facts say that at times during the administration, there clearly were mountains. There were countries that were more free, many countries that were more free uh, than they had been at the start of the administration. But a decline in freedom did start around 2006 and has continued since that point with a lot of people around the world doing what you just said, which is rising up on behalf of liberty and human rights and wanting to have a say in their government and finding opponents of those efforts striking back with vicious ferocity. So those big overall lessons learned really go beyond just this administration, don't they? I think they do. I think you're absolutely right. With the color revolutions in 2004, 2005, the emergence of states that had been under the Soviet Union's thumb, but were now free, free to join the EU, free to join NATO, become part of the West, the, uh, the, the uprisings in Ukraine and Georgia and uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, we really thought in 2003, 2004, 2005 that freedom, democracy was on a roll. It was the wave of the future. Mm. And in 2006 and 2007, as we'd say from the Star Wars analogy, the empire struck back uh, and the authoritarians began to uh, retake ground that had been won in the name of freedom. And you see it played out right now in Ukraine as the Ukrainian people fight and die for their own freedom uh, and to pursue their own democratic path in the face of the invasion from Russia. So it is a constant struggle. Second, uh, you know, the freedom agenda was one of the objectives, but there are other objectives of our foreign policy. And there's a question of balance. And particularly when you have to talk to friends and allies that are not uh, as free and democratic as they should be. And one of the things that President Bush tended to do was 
praise our friends and allies in public, but raise issues of human rights, rule of law, freedom and democracy in private. So there's a balance that needs to be struck. But I would say one thing I think we learned, and if, if it's in the foreword that Condi and I wrote for this book, at the most fundamental level, I think there is a convergence between our interests and our values, mm -hmm. that you have to have a foreign policy that is both realistic, that achieves interests that advance the security prosperity uh, of the American people and, and stability of the American people here at home and, uh, and abroad, uh, but also uh, is idealistic in that we stand as Americans for the promotion of freedom and democracy, rule of law and human rights. Every war we have ever fought has been in the name of promoting those values. And there's a reason for that. And I think the reason is that in some sense, promoting our values and helping states win their own freedom and build democratic states that are legitimate and effective, can serve the needs of their people, uh, can live at peace with their neighbors and cooperate with us in maintaining a rules-based international order. That is a world that is very much in our interests and in the interests of the American people to ensure the security, prosperity, and, and, and freedom of generations here at home. So at the most profound way, we tried to, to merge a policy that was both realistic and idealistic at the same time, because we thought pursuing our ideals and values in the end of the day, achieved the realist view of what are America's enduring interests. And that, of course, all had to be supported. And this is, I think, something people miss uh, by what we call the balance of power that favored freedom. That is to say, because there are authoritarian forces out there that deny people freedom, there needs to be undergirding this effort to promote our values, an effort to promote a balance of power, a fusion of military, economic, diplomatic, and other means of ourselves and our allies who similarly believe in freedom that it undergirds and supports our efforts at advancing our values in the international arena. Right. Well, we won't go through every part of the book because that would be an 18-hour podcast episode, but one that we, we do need to touch on is the part covering the war on terror. And this includes transition memos on dismantling al-Qaeda, on institutionalizing the war on terror, and also on the war of ideas. And these are, of course, uh, linked very closely and do overlap in some important ways. To, to set this up, you characterize it in the introduction to, to this part um, by saying that the question that this new administration faced from, from nearly every quarter after 9-11 was, how could you have let this happen and more urgently, what are you doing to keep it from happening again? And I, and I think that frame of mind is, is too often lost in the long history, that after September 11th, you had everyone from people like me in the intelligence community working on counterterrorism to pundits uh, outside of government saying, there are other attacks coming and they may be worse. And why did this administration let this happen in the first place? And what's going to give us confidence that it's not going to happen again? 
And that led to a whole lot of activity on actual tactical means to fight uh, al-Qaeda in particular, and institutions being created through legislation and through executive action, and of course through efforts to change the, the fight against terrorism to a war of ideas as well as a, a no-kidding shooting war. Looking back at all of these, as you've mentioned, you, you had the chance to review all of these transition memos and then ask people to write their reflections. What are your reflections on how that institutionalization of the war on terror did work, not only during those eight years, but how did it set up succeeding administrations to make the progress that has been made against al-Qaeda in particular and terrorism in general? Well, it's a good question. And uh, you're right to remind people uh, that uh, after 9-11, the intelligence community view was that this was likely to be the first mm -hmm. of a series of al-Qaeda mass casualty attacks, some of which might involve the use of weapons of mass destruction. And people also forget that just one month later, anthrax started showing up, a white powder anthrax started showing up in envelopes at congressional offices and major media. And Americans died as a result of those attacks. And we did not know from where they were coming. And it could have been Al-Qaeda for all we knew. And the third thing I think people, I, David, I just uh, got a printout from the, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence put out, which is all of the terrorist incidents from 2001 uh, going forward to the present day. And if you look in that period of 2001, two and three, the amount of terrorist attacks, not only in the United States, uh, uh, but, but primarily overseas, uh, is staggering. And the, the, if you look at the chronology, uh, there are threat warnings in the United States, which are dramatic, but there are terrorist incidents all over the world uh, at, at a remarkable rate. And I think people have to get their heads, I, I encourage people to get this chronology and read it, because it tells you the context in which we were operating. Um, it was a huge challenge, and the president basically led the country working with the Congress to resetting our policies, our institutions, and our means for dealing with this terrorism attack. And uh, second, one of the things that I think these uh, postscripts point out is a surprising number of those measures were adopted uh, by subsequent administrations, even by the Obama administration, which during the campaign in 2008 had criticized the Bush administration over its conduct of the war on terror. And the result, I think, is that the Bush administration established a foundation of institutions, procedures, and practices that were largely adopted or, or in a substantial degree adopted by successor administrations. And if you had told us that there would not be a major mass casualty terrorist attack in the United States after 9-11, if you told us that in September of 2001, uh, we would have been very surprised indeed. So it worked. Uh, and it's a credit to the, a variety of administrations, the Congress, but most of all, the American people. Um, one of the things we talk about in that is that some of those methods that were adopted 
because we felt we were behind al-Qaeda and did not understand the scope of the threat, we undertook a number of methods, which were in terms of, of uh, collection of intelligence, in terms of interrogation of, uh, of ter terrorist suspects and the like, to get the information we needed to keep the country safe. And those were difficult. And some of them, uh, the, the president made clear that we wanted to stay within the law, but do everything we could to keep the country safe. And we did. And some of those measures became a source of great controversy. And what's interesting about that debate that was subsequent to the Bush administration, or at the end of the Bush administration and subsequent, is we really had a national debate about what are the kinds of measures we should do that are consistent with who we are as Americas in order to protect us from terrorism, and what are the things we shouldn't do. And that debate was played out in congressional hearings, congressional legislation, lawsuits, decisions by the courts, decisions by the Bush administration, and subsequent administrations to begin to dial back some of those measures uh, once we became more confident that we were in a position to protect the country from subsequent terrorist attacks. So we get to the point now where we have a rough national consensus about what we're going to do and what we're going to not do to keep the country safe from terrorism. But the good news is, if you look where I started, that list of terrorist attacks around the globe in the 2001, uh, two, three, four, um, the, the threat environment is dramatically reduced. It has not gone away, but it's dramatically reduced. And that's a tribute, I think, to uh, the efforts by the United States, its friends and allies, and the international community gen generally to deal with the problem of terrorism, which was a global challenge of sobering proportions in 2001, 2, 3, and 4. Yeah. I'm going to push back on one part of that, and it's probably not where you think I'll push back. You characterize the period after the Bush administration as having a, a national debate about these means to combat terrorism, including things like enhanced interrogation methods. And I would argue, in fact, that there was no such national debate, that the semblance of a debate was President Obama declaring, we're not going to do that stuff anymore. But the national debate was never, okay, where on the spectrum from ask a terrorist detainee who we know is involved in operational planning, ask them nicely where the next plot is and what they're planning on doing. And if they say, I prefer not to answer, you say, okay, have a nice day. Um, that's one end of the spectrum. The other spectrum things that were, were, were never considered after 9-11, but things that have existed in human history, right? Shooting out kneecaps, pulling fingernails, uh, things like that. Where, where on that scale we, the U.S. government or humanity in general should be during times of high threat, all we really learned in those years after 9-11 was, well, we're not going to do those things beyond you know, the U.S. Army field manual kind of things. We're, we're not going to do any of those enhanced things anymore. I don't feel like we had the full national debate that you alluded to, such that if there were a similar incident, and we, we all hope there isn't, but if there were a similar incident today to 9-11, or perhaps even on a larger scale, and there was someone who was captured, 
who had news about the next even bigger attack that was imminent, I don't know that there is national consensus on what is okay and what isn't okay. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Do you, do you, do you think I'm wrong that there was more of a debate than I'm giving it credit for? Or do you think that it was merely a decision to say, okay, we're not doing that, let's move on? It's a good point, David, and in some sense, it's a corrective to what I said. I, I would say we had the debate, quote, quote, in the way that we do, given our institutions. We had congressional hearings. We had congressional legislation. Mm -hmm. And congressional legislation started putting limits on what we could do and explicit authorization of things that we could do. I negotiated the Detainee Treatment Act with Senator, the late Senator John McCain. We subsequently had the Military Commissions Act. The courts got into it. Decisions about what are the rights of the detainees being held in Gitmo, for example. Uh, what, could, what kinds of uh, procedures could the military commissions follow in trying to prosecute uh, uh, terrorists who had threatened or killed Americans? Um, uh, the Supreme Court made a number of rulings which were very pivotal in this part point. The Bush administration itself and subsequent administrations did their own internal reviews of their practices and procedures and modified them going forward, particularly as we got more and more comfortable that we were on top of the al-Qaeda threat. But we had this huge report that was done by the Senate Intelligence Committee on uh, detainee treatment interrogations and renditions. You had the CIA putting out a counter report. I think there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of discussion. And I think now, if you take legislation, if you take judicial decisions, and if you take the policies that are enshrined in executive orders and the like, there is a framework for what we're going to do and not do in the area of, of, uh, of uh, keeping the country safe from terrorism. But it was done in that peculiar way uh, involving all the inst institutions of government and, of course, the press, which was exposing these things and, and raising questions about them as well. So it was, I would say it was a debate in the sort of American style, lots of different forums getting into the act, the sum total of which we now have a framework of what we're going to do and not do on the issue of terrorism. Another aspect that's covered uh, in the book that I think is is remarkable is during the reflection on the institutionalization of the war on terror. And it's actually one of the longer transition memos. Several of them are, are quite short and, and concise and uh, crisply written for the incoming administration. The memo by Juan Zarate and Nick Rasmussen on institutionalizing the war on terror makes the point in that moment, at the end of 2008, beginning of, of 2009, that there are all these institutions that have been created. Uh, everything deriving from the awkwardly named, because uh, almost everything in Washington should have a pronounceable acronym, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act signed in December 2004, as I recall, the IRTPA, if you're going to try to pronounce it. But the creation of things like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the National Counterterrorism Center, and of course, the Department of Homeland Security comes about, and many other things. They make the point when talking about this that they have actually you know, modified many existing institutions and authorities, 
but question at the end of all of this process during the administration whether this is sufficient to allow the U.S. government to use all elements of national power and enlist private sector actors effectively. And they closed the memo saying, it is not clear that after all this, it is not clear that we are yet properly organized to address the long-term dimensions of violent Islamic radicalization at home and abroad, and that a new construct may be warranted. To me, that's, that's not wrong looking back. Of course, there has been the need in the almost 20, 15, 20 years since for some adjustments to the bureaucracy, and there may still need to be some. But it's a bit surprising to me that in 2009, some of the people intimately involved in developing and implementing the new institutions were already saying that a new construct may be warranted. What did you think about that? I thought it was insightful and right. Uh, and I think it's, it's partly a function of, uh, one, we've learned lessons of uh, how we've handled this as a nation for all these years. But secondly, the environment has changed, and the and the threat of terrorism has changed. We talked about how over time, the kind of centralized Al Qaeda terrorist threat that could conceptualize and execute the nine eleven kind of attack. The, one of the things we have done is really cause Al Qaeda to be in a situation where that kind of centralized, well planned, catastrophic attack. They don't really have the capacity for it. What have we seen instead? A metastasizing of al-Qaeda presence uh, around the world uh, and, uh, you know, incarnations and things like the Islamic State, for example. So the threat is very different uh, than it was uh, around the post-9-11 period. Secondly, I think the thing they're also pointing to is on the one hand, Bush decided we're going to treat this as a terrorist threat under the rules of war. Uh, and we are not going to treat it as a sort of civil law enforcement kind of problem. I remember very clearly a few days after 9-11, uh, President Bush talked, was out at Camp David, was talking to Bob Mueller, who was the new recently uh, uh, nominated and confirmed director of the FBI. The president said to him, Bob, your job has changed. The FBI has been focused on identifying and prosecuting and punishing prisoners and terrorists after the fact. That's not good enough. Your job now is to work with the intelligence agencies and get information that allows us to prevent the attack from even happening at all. And he was, he, Bush, was more concerned about preventing attacks than he was about prosecuting and putting people in jail after the attacks. That was clearly a second best option for the president. So I think one of the things, this has been a source of debate over the years on the war on terror. Do you treat it as a war under the rules of war, which give you the president and the country heightened powers, or do you treat it as a law enforcement matter? And there's a lot of debate about that. And the question I think that Juan and, and Nick and, and, and others are, uh, are raising, like Michelle Maldesti, is, is there a middle way? Is there more of a hybrid we should use 
uh, in terms of how to deal with this problem in the new environment in which it now presents itself. I'd like to touch on a, a few other transition memos before we uh, hit some broader themes. The ones on Afghanistan and Iraq are two of the longest transition memos for very, for very good reason that are in here. And they have decidedly different tones. The, the memo on Afghanistan spends quite a bit of time walking through many of the efforts that had been made, especially in the recent years right before the transition. But it definitely has a tone underneath it, especially in listing the elements to think about going forward with future challenges. Some of the things that bedeviled future administrations right up until the full withdrawal, things like the need to address both the center and the periphery, the need to generate unity of civilian effort across the country, and the need to empower the Afghan government and hold them accountable, things that were difficult in 2008 and perhaps increasingly so in the future. But overall, painting a picture of we've made a lot of progress, but there's a whole lot to be done. Iraq, similar in a way, but obviously coming out more on a high with the general success of the surge and talking about things as specific as specific bilateral agreements and upcoming elections and ways to integrate certain groups into the Iraqi government. What's interesting, Steve, is, is both of them very much end by telling the incoming administration in different words, different authors here, that you really need to keep your foot on the gas. Don't think that what's happened gets you anywhere because you need to keep it up. And in the Iraq memo specifically, it says the coming 18 months may be the most strategically significant period in Iraq since the fall of Saddam Hussein. Looking at Iraq and Afghanistan together or separately, reflect on that also for us, that great progress had been made in, in both countries in different ways with somewhat different trajectories afterward. And I'm wondering if these transition memos reflected the, the best that could have been expected at the time, or if you think looking back that maybe those seeds were there for the future in a way that could have been written about even more finally? Well, it's a very interesting question, David, and, and comparing the two experiences is, is uh, something that historians are going to have a lot of fun with. Uh, I think the, the success the president had with the surge in Iraq announced in January of 2007 which uh, dramatically brought down the violence and really unlocked the political system to begin trying to build a society where all three communities, Sunni, Shia, Kurds, and other minority groups could live together in peace. We felt pretty optimistic. Uh, I used to have a chart of terrorist incidents in Iraq from 2003 to the end. And we had a number of times where we changed thought we were changing our strategy in productive ways. And the number of incidents, terror, of, 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 of violent incidents, just kept going up. And I can remember telling the staff, I'll believe we have the right strategy when that curve starts going dramatically down. And after the surge, it did. It did. <laughs> it was really remarkable. And at the end, in 2008, the level of violence was still present, but it was not a strategic threat 
to the stability of the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi government was beginning to work again politically and trying to ad- address and resolve its differences. So we felt pretty pretty good about where we had ended up on Iraq. We did not have that kind of moment in Afghanistan. And as you know, the Obama administration tried their own surge in Afghanistan, but it was fairly time limited and it did not produce the kind of results we saw in Iraq. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I think a number of, of factors contributed to the success in Iraq that were not present in Afghanistan. And that made a, uh, a dramatic difference. But I think the real reason for you've got to keep your eye on this was that it was understood, I think, by those of us working on the issue, and the president made it very clear, is, look, this is a long-term proposition. Building, helping the Afghan and Iraq, Iraqi people building safe, secure, stable, democratic states that can provide services for their people and offer the prospect of a prosperous future was going to be a long-term proposition, the work of decades, if not generations. So we could start it under the Bush administration, but ultimately whether it would succeed would be determined in some sense by what future administrations did. Mm -hmm. And the example people used was the commitment we made in Europe to help it recover from the ravages of World War II, the commitment we made in South Korea. Remember, South Korea was a a military dictatorship for a long time into the late 60s and only subsequently became the kind of prosperous democratic society we see today. So the, the, the sections of the two memo were basically trying to call out to the new administration, this isn't done. And there's a lot of work yet to do here. Uh, And that was, I think, uh, that accounts for the tone at the end of those two memorandums. Mm -hmm. What about Russia and Ukraine in particular, but but Russia overall? Because the transition memos point out that at the beginning of the administration, remember, we're talking about the end of 2000, 2001 here, Vladimir Putin, he's not an unknown quantity, but but he is still, still rising. And... By the end of the administration, a lot of the efforts to bring in Russia as a strategic partner in so many areas had crashed on the rocks of things like the invasion of Georgia. Reflect back on that experience of getting to know Putin and getting to understand how Russia would react to everything from the expansion of NATO to the war on terror. Well, you know, one of the most interesting parts of of this I think was looking back, was how different the Russia and China, the Bush administration faced from the Russia and China we see today, and then trying to chart the evolution. Putin had been president only since, I think, 1999, so he was relatively new to the office when we came in. And uh, initially, there was some effort at political reform, economic reform. We had a Uh, a discrete dialogue between the Kremlin and the White House, where we tried to encourage Putin with the idea that he had an opportunity to bring Russia permanently into the West. Uh, and, And it seemed early on that he was inclined to do so, though he would say when he would, the president would raise this with him, that's where I wanna go. 
but there are dark forces in Russia and I must not awaken those dark forces. So you need to let me do it at my own pace in my own way. But in those early days, um, there was a, a fair amount of cooperation with Russia. Uh, you know, and we, we talk about it on terrorism, on proliferation. Uh, Russia worked with us to try to get a handle on the Iran and North Korean nuclear programs. Uh, we uh, were able to get out of the ABM treaty. And, and at the same time we were getting out of the ABM treaty, we entered into an agreement, the Moscow agreement, to reduce dramatically the levels of our strategic offensive nuclear weapons on both sides, something people said couldn't be done. So my point is, there is a lot that was accomplished. And given the situation, we thought it was reasonable to try to uh, have a constructive relationship with Russia, bring it into the international system, so it would not try to undermine that system and would not threaten the interests of the American and its allies. I think it was a regional bet, reasonable bet, but we hedged. We strengthened NATO. We strengthened our friends and allies in Europe. Uh, so in, as a hedge against the possibility that our efforts with Russia to bring it into the international system and to build a constructive relationship would fail. And that was a good thing to have done, as we've seen uh, in, in subsequent events. Where did we lose Russia? I don't think Russia was ours to lose. But what affected Russia's thinking? One of the things was domestic politics. Putin became, over time, increasingly authoritarian at home. And that has really accelerated since his most recent invasion of Ukraine that began in February 28th of 2022. And secondly, he was clearly unnerved by the color revolutions on his border, Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and other countries around the world. And he viewed those as efforts by the West not to create healthy, stable, democratic partners for Russia on its borders, but an effort largely through the CIA, working through NGOs, to try to create anti-Russian regimes on the border of Russia as a dress rehearsal of trying to destabilize Russia itself. I think he really, under the tutelage of his intelligence services, began to view it that way. And increasingly began, as Tom Graham writes in his essay, to see incorporation in the international system as contrary to Russian interests. And uh, as you say, it started it, it, it really came to the fore in his speech he made at the Munich Security Conference, I think in 2006, 2007, his invasion of Georgia in 2008, and then his invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And, uh, and Putin of today bears little relation to the Putin we were dealing with in 2001 through 2005 and six. One more substantive area to touch on, and I should point out that foreign policy junkies will absolutely, you know, love the details in the transition memos on everything from China to Colombia, from India to Iran. Almost everything in the world is in here at, at some level. Um, but the only other one I'll touch on for today is on the president's initiatives to tackle AIDS as well as malaria and other diseases that you mentioned at the top. 
Uh, drilling down on one is the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, uh, the more pronounceable acronym PEPFAR. We, we went into deep detail on this in, in an episode early on in the history of the Chatter podcast that I'll point people to in the, the show notes. But this is one of those that I've got to say, Steve, reflecting back on the Bush presidency, most people in the public, if they list 10 things, maybe even 20 that they can recall about the Bush presidency and foreign policy, um, it would surprise me if one in a hundred put PEPFAR on here. And that's surprising given that it, it was both an absolutely massive investment and used new methods of aid distribution and accountability in a way that has been a huge success that has literally contributed to the savings of, of millions of lives. Why is it, do you think, that in a sense, the Bush administration doesn't get more credit for PEPFAR, but even putting aside the issue of credit, that fewer people aren't aware of it. Was, was that a problem from the perspective of the National Security Council working with media and the public, a problem with the agencies and departments involved? Or is it just inherent in the nature of disease prevention versus more traditional hard national security issues? It's a really good question. And it is a puzzle. Um, and if you talk to President Bush, it's one of the things that puzzles him because it's something the American people should be very proud of. The American people, by their support for that program and the funding of that program, saved tens of millions of lives, tens of millions of lives. Um, it did not harm the program in the sense that one... Uh, president was committed to it. This was something he was going to do. I think we recite in the transition memo, Josh, Bo Josh Bolton and, and Gary Edson brought him an initial proposal <laughs> dealing with AIDS, HIV AIDS in the developing world. And he said, it's not ambitious enough. Go back and do it over. So this was a case where the president was clearly in charge and driving the policy. Second, the president was adamant that it was going to be bipartisan because he knew it had to be bipartisan if it was going to be maintained after he left office by whatever administration followed his. And third, he used the fact of the U.S. national commitment to lever international support. So it became not just a U.S. program, but it became in some sense an international effort to deal with this challenge uh, in Africa and the rest of the developing world. So I don't think the lack of sort of public appreciation um, uh, impaired the program, but it comes into play now. And if you noticed at the State of the Union address, President Biden, he gave a shout out to President Bush and the PEPFAR program and the impact it has had just on Africa alone, much less uh, globally. Why did he do that? Because it's up for reauthorization. And because Americans are not conscious of it, it may not have the political support it needs to be continued. So he was trying to address that problem by reminding the American people, hey, you guys, you American people, you did something great back then. Uh, let's, as he would say, let's finish the job. Let's reauthorize the PEPFAR program. Well, I want to go to a higher level at, at this point to to close out the a lot of what you 
handled during this transition that led to these memos uh, written, I think, almost exclusively by senior directors on the National Security Council staff, but certainly supervised by you and uh, probably edited by you at some point in the process. Uh, the National Security Advisor role itself is one that I think is is widely misunderstood, and in part because, frankly, Hollywood does get it so wrong. It seems like every every show and every movie I can think of, to the point that they have a national security advisor, has someone that is either a ruthless, unethical hatchet man for a uh, presidential agenda or an incompetent buffoon or a conniving rogue operator who's actively acting against and undermining uh, the very president whom he or she serves. And the first one may have some accurate elements, which is sometimes you do have to, in a sense, bang heads together to get a policy process completed. But overall, those three characterizations don't match my experiences with multiple national security advisors uh, almost universally. And, and I'm wondering if you have a better impression than I do of how Hollywood, rightly or wrongly, influences many, many Americans' views of how the U.S. government works. Do, do you think there's a better representation of this process, or is this something that, because it is so bureaucratic, because it is so, so process-oriented, that we just have to shake our heads and say, Hollywood's probably not going to write a really, really good version of this, other than perhaps the West Wing getting it right sometimes. Um, and we just have to accept that there will be a large-scale American misunderstanding of this this very process that has developed over decades to keep Americans safe. So uh, Hollywood, you know, <laughs> does its own thing. Uh, I'm not sure what impact it has on the public perception of the job, because remember, uh, the the archetype for the National Security Advisor was somebody you knew well, which was Brent Scowcroft. Oh, yeah. And Brent Scowcroft filled that job, and he said very clearly the National Security Advisor should carry out their job behind the scenes and off stage. <laughs> and it is important that the National Security Advisor not try to upstage, particularly the Secretary of State. Because in the end of the day, the National Security Advisor, while it's a great job, is a staff job. You are not Senate confirmed. You do not testify before the Congress. Your job is to help the president do his or her job in the area of national security and foreign policy. And you do that in two ways. You are advisor to the president, give the president your unvarnished views, and you run the interagency process, which is just a series of committees at various levels that tries to bring all elements of national capability to bear and, and all the departments of agencies to bear on a particular problem. It's a great job, but it is a staff job. It is not the Secretary of the State who is confirmed by the Senate, who is allocated people and money to carry out the foreign policy of the country and who is viewed by international figures as the principal representative of the president for national security and foreign policy matters, and rightly so. So I think the fact that it, I, I, I'm saddened to hear you characterize how it's portrayed in, by Hollywood, and I would be loath to think that that's the impression the American people have. 
but I think most American people really don't still don't know what the job is. Mm. I, I go around sometimes and uh, and people say, well, he was the NSA. And 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 folks will say, oh, really, did you run the National Security Agency, which, of course, is our intelligence oh. organization, not the National Security Advisor or the assistant to the president for national security affairs. So hmm. it, I, I regret it has a bad impression, but I think in some sense, uh, low profile is better for that position. Uh, and that's how I tried to carry it out in my time. Well, along those lines, Brent Scowcroft, whom you mentioned, Brett, Brett did the the Sunday talk shows and um, you know on on the record recordings with the media less often and in some cases much less often than some who came after him in the position. Do you think, given that it is a non-confirmed position, given that foreign policy is you know implemented and formulated in many cases more by the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and of course the President uh, himself or herself? Do you think that the National Security Advisor should actually pull back from the more modern experience of interacting directly with the media and the American public? No, I don't think so. But there's a question of how you do it. Hmm. Um, it really is, as, as again, I think it's one of the things people will take away from the book. The president is the strategist for his or her administration and sets the direction. Hmm. Uh, and, and so, therefore, the question of what the president thinks really matters. What are the president's instincts really matters. And the person who is closer really than any of the national security cabinet officials to the president on a day-to-day basis is the national security advisor. And what the national security advisor, and I did a lot of the Sunday shows, but I never did it in my own name. It never was, what do I think? It was always my job was to go out and explain what the president was thinking and what the president was trying to accomplish. I would have meetings sometimes with the national security principals. And the first question when an issue would come up, they would turn to me and say, what does the president think? Because they thought I would probably have a better sense of that given my day-to-day contact with the president than they did. That's what the national security advisor should be doing when they talk publicly. They should be explaining not what they think, but what is the president's view and what is the president's thinking. And you have to do it in a way that you do not upstage the secretary of state. And that proximity of the president is one of the problems and one of the things that can raise some misunderstanding because, you know, you're sometimes the first person the president hears from is on a problem and the last person the president hears from before they make a decision. And that is a position of real privilege. And in order to ensure that it does not raise suspicions among the other national security principles, the vice president, secretary of state, secretary of defense, secretary of the treasury, you need as national security advisor to be very transparent with them about what you are saying to the president. Yes, you keep the president's confidence, but you give them some sense of what you're saying to the president so that if they want to rebut it and explain a contrary view, they're in a position to do so. So that's why I think being, as we used to say, the honest broker of the interagency process, running a fair process, a transparent process, where everybody has a chance to express their views to the president, is the essential piece of the role of the National Security Advisor. 
Well, let me reach into our chatterbox to pull out a question that will uh, broaden this a bit. And we'll end with this. Recommend any recent book you've read, TV show you've watched, or podcast you've listened to. So a couple things. My wife and I read out loud, which usually means me reading to her as she drifts off to sleep. <laughs> and we've uh, we read uh, some time ago, about a year and a half ago, Henry Kissinger's book entitled Diplomacy, which he wrote in the 1990s. Oh, yeah. Which is a wonderful history of diplomacy from, you know, over the last 400 years. Mm -hmm. And secondly, with all the discussion about Russia and Ukraine, we're reading The Icon and the Axe. Oh, yeah. Which is a book that came out um, over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um before the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think. Um, but I may be wrong about that. We have, we're only on page 120, and it's a good 700-page <laughs> book. But, it tell, but it's really revealing. And what it tells you is that ever since the, the 14th, 15th century, Russia has been struggling with how to define its, its relationship with the West. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's... It has echoes all the way to the present. And it, it shows you that the period of the Soviet Union was a striking anomaly in the history of Russia. And in what you're seeing is, in some sense, a return to a much more uh, normal historic experience in dealing with the challenge of Russia for the West and for Russians, the challenge of the West for Russia. We still haven't gotten that right. We appreciate the recommendations. Steve Hadley, thank you for spending so much time with us talking about both the book Handoff, about the National Security Advisor's role, especially in transitions. Uh, We appreciate it. It was a real opportunity for me. I'm grateful for the chance to speak with you. you. You've got a great podcast here. Congratulations to you. That was Chatter a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.